Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, well, open your Bibles, I would say, to Philippians chapter 2, but I want you to actually open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 2 tonight, but I want to give a little bit of context as to what we've been seeing in the book of Philippians. So if you remember, Paul is writing back to the Philippian church from a prison in Rome. He planted the church. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, you'll find out how that church was planted. We talked about how Lydia, God opened her heart. You had the little slave girl that was the demon-possessed girl. You had the Philippian jailer. That was the nucleus of the church that was birthed. And so Paul is writing back and he's encouraging them. And then if you remember, he's in prison and his, his big statement there in chapter 1, verse 21, it's kind of Paul's anthem. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That, that's Paul's heartbeat. And then I said last week, um, or two weeks ago, in verse 27 of chapter 1, this was the transition or this was the hinge verse that's going to launch us into the rest of the book. And so, verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul says, Only let your manner of life, some translations may say your lifestyle, your conduct, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel. So Paul says, I want you to live a life it's worthy of the gospel. I want your lifestyle to display the glories of the gospel. And then last week, we started looking at how do you do that? And so Paul last week says, really, I want you, first of all, to have some Christ-like humility. I want you to count others better than yourselves. I want you to have the same mind. And then he says, I want you to have the attitude of Christ. And, and we looked last week where Jesus was exalted in heaven and he came to earth as a man and not just a man, but as a servant and not just as a servant, but gave himself up for us on the cross, died a cruel death. And then God raised him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. And that's where we ended up last week. And so for today... We are going to look at Philippians 12, 12 through 18, and it's really, again, asking the question, how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? How do we do that? And so Paul's going to address three areas. Okay, we're going to spend most of our time tonight on verses 12 through 13. And then we'll get to 14 and 16 and 17 and 18. But number one, he addresses the issue of what I would call practical Christianity. And so I want to spend some time tonight on Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, because there's been a lot of confusion over the years as to how to understand this. Okay, let me just say this before we even start. Okay, I'm going to do a little bit of preaching here before I do teaching. Okay, so... A lot of bad theology in Christianity doesn't come necessarily in how we're saved. 
We all know we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's, that's pretty standard stuff. Among evangelical Christians, where things tend to go off the rails is in how you live out your Christianity and some weird doctrines related to how you grow as a Christian. Okay, And so I want us to be very careful in reading this verse tonight to understand what it is to grow as a Christian. So let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay. Work out your salvation. Does Paul say work for your salvation? No. He says work it out. So before we dive into this passage, Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture for a moment and discover what Paul's not saying, okay? Because there's some confusion here. Let's just, one of the things we need to do, and I've talked about this many times, it's called let Scripture interpret Scripture. We need to go to other areas of Scripture and let the Scripture interpret Scripture to find out what Paul's not saying here. Okay, so Romans 3, 23-24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Okay, we're saved by grace, as a gift, not by works. Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We're saved by grace, not by works. Okay, Ephesians 2.8-9 for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So obviously here in Philippians 2 verse 12, Paul cannot be saying work for your salvation. That would nullify everything else he said in other books of the Bible because we're saved by grace. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to work out your salvation. What does that mean? He's talking to believers who are already saved by grace, and he's encouraging them to work out their salvation. And so I'm going to make a statement that some Christians get uncomfortable with. Okay, here's the statement. Paul calls us to diligently pursue Christ through activity and effort. In some Christian circles, any mention of the word effort, concentration, struggle, activity, or work are frowned upon because they seem to think that if you focus so much on the diligence or the work or the effort, then, and then you take the Holy Spirit out of the equation and it's you just trying hard to live the Christian life. I'm going to show you how that's not true in this passage of Scripture. So I'm going to teach you some new words, okay? It's always fun to learn some new words tonight, okay? The first word is the word monergism. Actually, there's a really good website called monergism.com. 
every, every book of the Bible, audio. There's, um, it's one of the best websites out there, monodism.com. But mono, mono means one. The Greek word ergon means to work. So monergism is a theological word that means there's only one working. There's only one doing the work. Okay? In our salvation, it's monergistic. Okay? The second word I want to teach you is synergism. We get the word synergy. Okay? Syn, S-Y-N, means together. Same word, ergon. Instead of one working together, synergism means two or more working together. Okay. So in our salvation, it is absolutely what we call monergistic. That is, God alone does the work. God chooses us, God regenerates us, God calls us, God saves us. We contribute nothing to our salvation. God alone saves us by His work alone. Would you agree? We can't contribute any works to our salvation. He has to save us alone by His own working. Okay, But, yet, nevertheless... Once we become Christians who have been regenerated, who have been given the Holy Spirit, who have been made new, when it comes to our sanctification, that is our growing in Christ-likeness, our progress in holiness, our spiritual maturity, the work is synergistic. In other words, we work together with God to accomplish this activity. Because look at the text very carefully. Paul tells us to work out your own salvation. Not work for it, but work it out. Now, whose responsibility is it to work out your own salvation? It's you. You or me, we are commanded to work out our salvation. Now, you can kind of get a little hint as to what that means by going back up into the verse, in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So working out your salvation is closely tied to obeying the commands of Jesus. And so the Greek word to work out your salvation, work it out, it comes from that ergon word that we've looked at, but it means to work with great effort or with careful attention. Okay, I'm going to say this right now and then we're going to unpack it. It's very important. If all we had was verse 12, you would look at that and say, well, I have to put forth all the effort. It's all on me. But you have verse 13. What does verse 13 tell us? It's God that works in you. Okay, so you have a responsibility to work out your salvation, but at the same time, God is the one that's working in you to do that. Okay, so it's a joint effort. And I'll explain that. But there are a lot of passages of Scripture that teach effort. And I'm going to say it this way. Can I say it this way? Spirit-empowered effort. 
Not you in the flesh trying harder, but the Holy Spirit working in you to put forth effort. Now, let me just go down this path and show you that because a lot of, there, there's, there's a school of Christianity out there. You may have heard of this school of Christianity. Um, it's called the let go and let God theology. I'm just supposed to let go. I'm supposed to yield. I'm supposed to just rest. I'm supposed to just kind of passively rest in God and not put forth any effort. And if I put forth effort, that's sinful because I'm putting forth effort. I just need to yield myself to Christ. And so there's kind of that that theology out there. It's called the victorious Christian life. It's called the higher life. They use words like surrender and yield. And in in any terminology of effort, they say is, is dangerous. Don't, don't talk about effort now because you're taking the Holy Spirit out of it. But what I want to show you is I want to show you some passages of Scripture that teach very clearly that you and I have the responsibility to put forth effort in the Christian life. Post-salvation. Not initial salvation. We're not saved by works, but after we're saved in how you grow. Okay, So I could spend a month of Sundays on Romans 8.13. As a matter of fact, in my book, I, I devote a whole chapter to this passage of Scripture um, on, on the mortification of sin. But Romans 8.13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, you must put to death the deeds of the body. You and I have a responsibility to be killing sin in our lives. John Owen said it this way, you need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. You and I have to be killing sin, putting sin to death. But did you notice what Paul says there? How is it done? Look at, it, look, look at that verse very carefully. By the Spirit. Do you see both actions there? You put to death the deeds of the body. You kill sin. That word put to death really means to kill. You kill sin, but how do you do it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have a responsibility to put sin to death, but the only way you do that is through the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's look at some other passages that teach this whole idea of the struggle of the Christian life. So 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified." What imagery does Paul equate the Christian life to here? Running a race in a boxing match. Now, does that sound like activity? Anybody here ever run a marathon? Really? Okay, awesome. Anybody here ever been in a boxing ring? Boxes, some of you. Yeah. You're kind of sweaty when it's done, right? If you're truly running, if you're truly putting forth effort. Okay, so Paul uses this image, this athletic imagery of the Christian life, as one of, of, of discipline, of putting forth effort, like you're boxing or running. Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Again, I want to show you these verses that have both working there. I toil, I struggle, I put forth effort, but who's working in me? 
His energy is powerfully working within me. God is supplying me with the power to do this. Okay, 1 Timothy 4, 7-10. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train, and that word train is where we get our word gymnastics or gymnasium. It's the Greek word gymnazo. Train like you're in a gym. Train yourself, not physically, but train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul says, listen, you've got to train. You've got to strive. You've got to toil. Growing in Christ requires effort, energy, concentration. It requires, let me just put it this way. Is the Holy Spirit going to set your alarm at 6 o'clock, get you up, and make you read your Bible and do your quiet time in the morning for you? Or is that something you're going to have to do? Both, okay? Are you going to learn your Bible by osmosis where you go to bed at night and put the Bible on your head and you wake up the next day and you have all this knowledge because you just kind of passively let the stuff soak in? No, you you wish that was the way it happened. It requires reading. It requires praying. It requires struggling. It requires discipline, okay? Yes? We're going to get there. Yeah, well, back in Philippia, her question is, why does it say work out your salvation with fear and trembling? We're going to get there. We're going to get back to the Philippians passage. What I'm doing right now is I'm building, what I'm doing right now, in case you wonder where, where we're meandering off to, I'm building a case right now that Paul, especially in the rest of the Bible, teaches that we must put forth some type of effort in the Christian life to grow. And he's used words like put to death, box, run, train, strive, toil, work out. Okay, I'm just showing these right in front of you so that you, I'm trying to show you that there are some Christians in some circles that don't like the word effort because they feel like that's going to lead to legalism or it's going to lead to you working things in the flesh. And I'm going to, I'm going to explain that here in just a moment, but I want to show you biblically that you, you, have to, you have to deal with these passages of Scripture that teach some type of striving, toiling, concentration, effort. Okay, they're, they're here. They're in front of us, right? You, you guys de- not denying these passages are here in front of us, right? Okay. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I'm sorry. 1 Timothy 6, 12. I'm getting ahead of myself. 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called about, which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight. Does that sound like passive? What does fight sound like? Okay, 2 Timothy 4, 7. This is Paul's very last words before he goes to his death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. There's those boxing imagery again. I fought like a boxer. I ran like, like, a, like a runner. I finished. Okay, that's Paul. Now let's go to the writer of Hebrews. Which some, even Charles Spurgeon would say, Hebrews was written by Paul. We do not know the author of Hebrews. 
I will tell you my personal opinion if you guys want to know who the writer of Hebrews is. It's anonymous. I think, this is my personal opinion, I think the material of Hebrews was one of Paul's sermons, because Hebrews is a sermon, but I think it was recorded by Luke. Luke actually wrote down one of Paul's sermons, and I think Luke is possibly the author of Hebrews. I can't prove that, but there's some scholarship that leans towards that idea, and I think there's some good cases for it. The traditional view has been we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Some people have attributed to Paul, um, some old commentators, even like Spurgeon, he just like flat out says, Paul says in Hebrews, he doesn't say, I think, you know, we really don't know. But the writer of Hebrews says this in, in, in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with what? Endurance. The race that's set before us. So the writer of Hebrews uses that running language. Run with endurance. Okay, let's go to 2 Peter. This is probably one of the best examples, okay? So let's start where 1 Peter starts. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Okay, stop right there. This is probably one of the most important verses in your New Testament when it comes to living the Christian life. What is Peter saying there? His, whose who's divine power? Yours? No, his divine power has granted to us what? All things that pertain to what? Life and godliness. Okay, so let's just stop right there. Everything you need to live the Christian life, to grow in godliness, has been given to you by God's power. It's available to you. God has granted you, by His divine power, everything you need to grow. So, number one, it's not up to you. And this is, I'm, I'm piggybacking on what Paul said in Philippians 2. We're going to get back to Philippians 2, but these say the same thing. It's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose, but you've got to work out your salvation. Paul here, or Peter here starts and says, hey, you've, you've been given everything you need to live the Christian life. You have been given all things by God's divine power. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's keep that in context, okay? His divine power has granted to us all things, not some things, but all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, let's start with verse 5. What does Peter say? For this very reason... What reason? What he's just said. You've been given everything you need in Christ. You've got his power. You've been born again. For this very reason, look at your Bibles, or look at what, what's on this, the sheet that's quoting from the Bible. Make every effort. Make every effort to do what? Supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brother, brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. Let me just paraphrase what Peter says. Because the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again and given you everything you need, it's your responsibility to make every effort to add these things to your life. And if these things are added to your life, it's because the Holy Spirit's given you the power to do that. Okay? So, from these passages that I've just showed you, we see the Scripture clearly calls us to put forth diligent effort in our sanctification. Words like run, fight, diligently pursue, discipline, train, grow. These are things we must do. Whose responsibility is it to do these things? It's yours. Now I'm going to unpack this so that you're not, you're not depressed. Because if all we had, and let's go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. If all you had was verse 12 without verse 13, there are some of you in this room that would respond in two ways, depending on your personality and your bent. If all you had was verse 12. Because verse 12 tells you to work it out, work out your salvation, obey. Some of you in this room would say, awesome, just give me the list and I'll go out and do it. I can do it. Give me the list. I've got the power. I'm going to do it. I, I've got the gumption. I've got the know-how. I'm going to do this. Because you're so confident that you can do it. Some of you in this room are going to be like, I, don't, I can't even begin to do it because I feel defeated already. I know I can't do it. So I feel defeated. Some of you will be overconfident that you can do it. Some of you will feel guilty and defeated that you can't do it. Because if all we had was verse 12, it, it would be like, it's all up to me. You grow. You work out. You obey. You just, like Nike, just go do it. And some of you think, well, I can do it. And some of you think, I can't do it. That's why we have verse 13. Verse 13 says what? Verse 13 illustrates for us the synergistic work. In verse 12... We are the ones responsible for working out our salvation with fear and trembling. In verse 13, it is God who does the work in us. Now let's go back to Shauna's question about fear and trembling. I don't want to tip my hand because I'm going to be preaching on that this Sunday and I don't want to give away my sermon. But this Sunday's sermon, we're going to talk about three types of fear. Um, two are kind of negative fears and one's a positive fear. But the Bible talks about three different types of fears, and I'm not going to tell you what they are because I want you to come back Sunday. But this fear and trembling, Shauna, is not where we're over here shaking in our boots, worried that God's going to strike us with a lightning bolt if we don't measure up. It's not that type of, oh, I better, I better, I better shape up or God's going to be mad at me. It, that's not the words there. It's more of because God is sovereignly awesome and powerful, I desire to obey Him, and I do this with reverence and awe. I do this with humility. I do this with worship. 
I do this because I know that he's worth following. Does that make sense, Shauna? It's not a scared, frightened fear that you're going to get punished by God. It's more of a reverential fear that you're doing it out of humility and awe and reverence for God. That's the fear and trembling. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, um, well, 1 Timothy says God did not give us a spirit of timidity or fear. And then 1 John says perfect love casts out fear. So we're going to talk about the three types of fear. Because well, I'll just tell you what Jesus says. Jesus says don't fear the one who can kill you, your body. Fear him who has the power to cast you into hell. And then he says don't fear because you're more valuable than sparrows. I'm just going to leave it at that. Three types of fear. So here's the bottom line. Back to this passage of Scripture. In the process of sanctification, not our, again, let me define terms. Everything about your initial salvation is God alone working. Okay, God chose you before the foundation of the world. God regenerated you. God caused you to be born again. God called you. God saved you. It was all of grace. You becoming a Christian was all of grace. It was all God working. But once you become a Christian, you have a responsibility to grow, and that's called sanctification. It's the progress. It's the process. It's the daily walk, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we put forth effort and concentration, but we don't do this with a legalistic attitude to win God's approval. It's not like we're doing this so, God, so we get brownie points with God. God's looking down at me and I'm doing so good, He must be happy with me because I'm doing really good. Let me just say this. I've said this before. On your best days, when you're having your quiet time, and you're memorizing your scripture, and you're loving your spouse, and you got Caleb cranked high, and you get all your chores done. God doesn't love you more because of that. And on the days when you're tanking it, and you cuss at your dog, and you cut somebody off in traffic, and you forget to have your quiet time, God doesn't love you less based upon your performance. Okay? God's love for you is constant based upon Christ. Okay, our identity, our position is in Christ. And so we never operate out of winning brownie points with God because somehow we have this faulty view that if I perform at a higher level, God must love me more, but when I'm way down here, He must love me less. So therefore, I must work harder to win God's approval. Some of you that grew up in families with fathers or parents that you tried to win their approval, you may still operate as a Christian this way and think about your Heavenly Father that way. I need to perform in order for God to accept me. You don't need to perform for God to accept you because you can never perform good enough. Jesus performed perfectly the will of the Father, died in your place, rose again. His righteousness is credited to you so that you're permanently accepted by the Father. So your position is always one of being accepted. In your sanctification, in your growth, yeah, you do it to please the Father. You do it with fear and trembling, but you don't do it out of some type of legalism to somehow win or God's approval. Instead, how do we do it? We do it through 
the power of the Spirit with humility that knows we can do nothing without Jesus. What does John 15, 5 say? I am the vine. This is Jesus speaking. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, let's look very carefully at verse 13 before we go any further. For it is God who works in you. Okay, God is working in you. What is God working in you? Two things. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So let's ask the question. What is God working in your life? Paul gives two things there. The will. Okay, let me, let me say it this way. The first thing God gives you is the desire or the willingness to obey. Now, that only goes halfway. You can have a desire to obey, but not actually obey. The second thing he gives you is the power. So he gives you two things in the way he works in you. He gives you the will or the desire to obey, to work out, and he also gives you the power to do it. Let me say it this way. God gives you the want to and the can do. Okay? God gives you the want to. I want to obey Jesus. Where does that want to come from? God. God gives you that desire. I can obey. Who gives you that power? God gives you that power. So, you're responsible for working out your salvation, but any desire you have to work it out and any power you have to work it out, at the end of the day, does not come from you. It comes from God working in you. Now, how does this happen? What has God given us as tools or means to grow? These have historically been called, in, at least in our Reformed tradition, the means of grace. The means of grace... These are not the things that save us. That's God's saving grace. But the means of grace are things that the Bible tells us God has graciously given to us to help us grow. And you know what these are. Prayer, Bible reading, Scripture intake, fellowship, worship, service, the Lord's Supper, and many other ways the Scriptures tell us to grow. So let me ask you a question. Will you grow if you don't read your Bible? Maybe. Whose responsibility is it to read your Bible? Yours. So you have a responsibility to pick up your Bible and read. But when you read the Bible, who's given you the desire to read it? God. Who's given you understanding? God. Who's producing the fruit in your life? God. But you still have to take advantage of the means he's given to you to do that. Okay? So let me give you an illustration. This comes from a really good book called The Enemy Within. Straight talk about the power to defeat sin by an author named Chris Lungard. He talks about John Henry's hammer. You guys remember the song about the man who dug a steam, John Henry's hammer? It's a, some of you are like, I remember it. It's a man who dug out 
dug, dug, dug out with the steam drill this mountain. He worked so hard with his hammer that after he dug through the mountain, he laid the hammer down and died. The hammer was the tool to dig through the mountain. So what Lungard in his book says is God has called us to grow in Christ-likeness, which seems at times like digging through the Himalayas. We have a mountain facing us every day, and yet we're called to work out our salvation. We are called to work with the tools that God has placed in our hands. What are these tools that God's placed in our hands? Primarily, they are Scripture saturation, worship, and prayer. So you have to take up the tools that God's given you. God's going God's to get you through the mountain. But He's not going to get you through the mountain unless you pick up the tools to get through the mountain. And those tools are reading your Bible, praying, being in worship. So here's the point. Any success, growth, or transformation is solely the result of the Sovereign Spirit. He produces the fruit. He brings about the transformation. He grants the growth. But we must use the tools He's given us. So we have a responsibility to grow, to obey. The desire to do that is put there by the Holy Spirit, and the power to do that is put there by the Holy Spirit. And any growth we experience is totally up to God's sovereign grace in our lives. But there are two extremes in this approach to Christian growth. One extreme is where some people would call it passivism or quietism, where we don't do anything. We just kind of sit back, we wait for God to deliver us from sin. We wait for God to do all the work. We never put forth effort. We never pray. We never read our Bibles. We never pursue the means the Lord has given us. Um, we expect immediate growth with very little effort. Just yield yourself to God and everything will work out. Just stop, stop worrying about struggling. Stop pursuing these things. Just let go and let God. That's one extreme, is the one extreme to be like, I'm just going to pass, I'm going to be a passive channel, and God's going to do his work through me, and I don't need to put forth any effort, because any effort's sinful. So God has to do it all. I'm just going to yield and rest in him. That's one extreme. The other extreme, is what I talked about earlier, is legalism. You, you look at it as a duty. You put forth all this effort. You do it in your flesh. You never rely upon the Holy Spirit and you try to produce the results yourself. One places all the scales on God to do everything. The other places all the scales on you to do everything. How does this passage of Scripture place the scales? You have a responsibility to use the means that God has given you to grow. Reading your Bible. Praying being a part of a worship service, being part of a small group, fellowship, the things that God has given. You have to take advantage of those things. You have to participate in those things. You have to do those things. 
But if there's going to be any growth, if there's going to be any fruit, if there's going to be any transformation, if there's going to be any type of spiritual growth, it's not because you produced it. God produced it in you. All you did was take advantage of the means of grace that God has given you to promise you to grow. But you have to take, pick up those tools and use them. You're not the one that produces the growth. You're not the one that produces the fruit. You're not the one that produces the results. God is. But God does not do that without your participation. Now, here's a caveat. This is freeing. Okay? Do you realize that God is always at work in you even when you do not perceive it or know it yourself? You may not know how God's working in you right now. You may not know until you look back five years from now and be like, wow, back in 2021 during the pandemic and stuff, I didn't realize what God's doing with me, but now I look back and see he was doing a work. So sometimes God is working in you and you may not even know it. Which is freeing because it means that God's producing something in you and you're not even doing anything about it. Now, other times see the fruit because you, you put forth the effort. I, I've been spending time in the Word. I've been spending time in fellowship. I've been spending time in prayer, and I'm seeing the fruit in my life because I've taken advantage of the means of grace. So, yes, I'm not giving you a free pass to say don't pick up those tools and use them, but I'm also giving you the freedom to say even when we think that we're not progressing in the Christian life, God is still at work in us, and we may not even know it or see it. Others may see it in us before we see it in ourselves. Somebody may come up to you and say, you know what, I've seen a lot of growth in you in the past couple months. You're like, what? I feel like it's been like the worst two months of my life. What are you talking about? Well, God was working in you, and another person saw it. So there's a balance here. Let me give you two quotes here um, from John Murray and Martin Lloyd-Jones. So John Murray has said this, The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and powers of God. You thought about that? If if you are reading your Bible more and praying more and being involved in fellowship more and worship more, it's probably evidence that God's working in you more. His power's at work. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones has made this helpful statement. He says this, commenting on this verse. It means that every good desire, every Christian thought and aspiration which I have is something which has been produced in me by God. God controls my willing. It is God who energizes my very desires and hopes and aspirations and thoughts. He stimulates it all. So it's a mystery how God works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure and how that works with you working out your salvation. We don't work for our salvation. We're saved by grace. But we put forth effort in growing like Christ. We're responsible to do that. But the Holy Spirit's the one that puts the desire in there and the Holy Spirit's the one that puts the power in there and the Holy Spirit's the one that produces the results. And it's all up to God to do that. Now, before we move any further, is there any questions on that teaching? Because that's a very important teaching. That I, You need both those verses together. You need 12 and 13 together. 
Any questions before we move forward? Any questions online? I don't know. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not following. So if somebody puts a, somebody puts a comment in there, I'll, I'll answer it at the end. All right, let's move on to the next fun part where he deals with steadfastness. So Paul addresses steadfastness, and he addresses something that none of us are guilty of. You ready? None of us, I, I guarantee none of you are guilty of this. You ready? Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I know none of you are guilty of verse 14 of ever grumbling or complaining or disputing. Grumbling. This draws us back to the nation of Israel. What was the big sin that the nation of Israel kept doing over and over again when they were They had been released from Egyptian captivity. God had powerfully delivered them through the Red Sea. They get across. They get out of the Egyptian army and Pharaoh have been killed. And they're out there in the wilderness. And God takes care of them with manna and quail. And God gives water from a rock. And and God gives them shoes for their feet. And what happens to that generation? They grumbled. Constantly complaining. Numbers 14, 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept at night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. Now, what, what, what's the context here? This is when Moses sends the 12 spies in to spy out the promised land. Remember? They come back and 10 of them say, we can't take this place. They're, they're giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers. There's no way we can go take the land. And Caleb and Joshua stand up and say, we can take it. God's on our side. And then the people get mad and say, we don't like you as our leader. Get us a new leader. We don't like being here in the wilderness. It would be better for us to go back into slavery in Egypt. Now think about that. We want to go back through the Red Sea and back into Egypt. We can't stand our leaders. We're going to grumble. Grumbling. They're complaining. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay. Arguing, grumbling. There's a word my dad made up. He called it Grinchin. Like from the Grinch. I don't know, he just called me Grinchy. He's like, you're being Grinchy. This is what my dad said growing up. Grinchy, grumpy, grumbling, complaining, murmuring, all those words. Now, I want you to notice why Paul tells us not to grumble. Look at how Paul frames this. Paul's reason 
for this very radical command to not grumble or complain or argue is so that, think about this, it will not distort our witness to a world that's entrenched with grumbling, complaining, and arguing. What do non-Christians do well? Grumble, argue, and complain. What happens when we as Christians act the same way as non-Christians when we grumble, argue, and complain? They look at us and say, well, you're no different than us. You're grumbling and arguing and complaining. Now, notice what Paul says here. Verse 14 is very clear. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That, okay, here's the reason why. Verse 15, that purpose, result, you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, when Paul says they're blameless and innocent, he doesn't mean that we're without sin. What he's basically saying there is that we will be people of integrity. We will be people of purity. We will be people that are above reproach. No one can bring an accusation against us. No one would be able to blame us for any wrongdoing. And so Paul says, listen, you Philippians, and by extension us, we live in what type of generation? What's the words he uses there? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Crooked and twisted generation. This was described of the nation of Israel when they went off the rails and were disobedient to the Lord. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 5, listen to how God describes Israel. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. That was the generation that wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and died because they disobeyed. That was the generation that grumbled. You know what happened to that generation that grumbled? That said, we're not going to go into the land? If you keep reading Numbers chapter 14, God says, okay, you grumbled. Okay, you don't want the land. Guess what? You're going to wander around for 40 years and you're going to die and never see the promised land. And here, in Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding the new generation about their parents and he says, listen, your parents grumbled and they are a crooked and twisted generation. What was Israel's role in the Old Testament? This is a fascinating thing to think about. We often don't think about the missionary role of Israel in the Old Testament because in the New Testament, we've got the Great Commission where we're supposed to go out to all the nations and make disciples of all the nations. In the New Testament, the message was go out to the nations. In the Old Testament, it was the exact opposite. It was come see the nation of Israel and how they're different. Israel was never told to go out to the nations. The only prophet that went to the nations was Jonah. They were to be a light and example to all the pagan nations around them so that the nations would look at Israel and say they are absolutely different because they are God's people. It was a come and see in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it was go out. What's it now? It's a combination of both. It's a come and see how we as the church are different, but it's also let's go out to people who are lost and share the gospel. It's a both and. Israel's role. 
Isaiah 49, 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. A light to the nations. I want you to think of that imagery. The Israelites were to be a light to the nations. They were to shine their light to the nations around them. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Canaanites, all the ites. Okay. Um, sort of. The question is, was this why Moses was not allowed to take the promised land? Moses' problem wasn't grumbling. Moses' problem was anger. Seriously, Moses had an anger problem. He struck the rock. And so, as God's servant, when he struck the rock, God prevented him from going into the promised land. Um, not because he was grumbling so much, it was more anger. Now, anger and grumbling can come together. Um, the reason the people did not get to see the promised land was because they grumbled and disobeyed. Moses' situation was different. He was the man of God. He, he struck the rock. He did not trust in Christ at that moment. Because who was the rock? Jesus was the rock. Okay? Hopefully that answers this question. Okay, so how does Paul describe a lost culture? Crooked and twisted. Crooked means dishonest, while twisted means perverted or depraved. In other words, Paul's culture and our culture today, and we don't have to debate this, do we? Do we live in a twisted and perverted culture? Yes. Do we live in a, in a, in a culture that's in rebellion against God? Yes. Do we live in a culture of people that are lost and blind and spiritually dead? Okay. Yes. Now, we need to be very careful here. We don't want to ever excuse their behavior, but we also need to understand that non-Christians are going to act like non-Christians. And so they're going to act depraved and twisted because that's their nature to act that way. So if they're in darkness and they're depraved... <coughs> Excuse me. And they're twisted and crooked and dark. How does Paul describe what we're supposed to do? Look, look very carefully. What was Israel's role? To be a light to the nations. They were not a light to the nations. That generation, they were crooked and twisted. But notice what he says there. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul says, some translations say shine as stars. Now think about the darkness of a night sky and the brilliant illumination of the stars. Does anybody know what the brightest star in our galaxy is? Besides the sun. Okay. The brightest star in our galaxy. Anybody know what it is? It's, it's a radio channel. Sirius. And I'm being really serious about this. No, serious. Actually, it's twice the size of the sun and twice as bright. It can be seen anywhere on the planet. Sirius is the brightest star. 
So if the world is dark and twisted and corrupt and in rebellion, can we expect the world to shine light on itself? No. We have to be the ones who have the light to shine the light. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 14-16? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to shine like lights in the world. We are to shine like stars. We are to expose the darkness in our light shining, if you will. Um, Ephesians 5.8 For at one time you were what? Darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Shine your light. Walk as children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So, how do you shine? There's two ways that you shine. Now there's more, but I'm just going to give you the context here. Paul gives two ways we shine in a dark and crooked world. The first is, we don't grumble and complain. How do you want to shine your light? You've got joy. You've got contentment. You're thankful. You're not grumbling. You're not, you're not acting like the world does, murmuring. That's, that's the first thing. But then notice what else he says here. In verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. holding fast to the word of light. Now, there's a difficulty in the translation there. I think the NIV takes it as holding out the word of God to people. I think a more accurate way to translate it is actually holding fast. The primary way we shine as lights and advance the gospel and be a positive witness is our tenacious fidelity to the word of God. What does it mean to hold fast to the word of life? What does it mean to hold it fast? You hold on tightly. You stand up strong for God's word. So, in this passage of Scripture, now there's many other ways we can be witnesses, but in this passage of Scripture, Paul says the primary ways you are a witness to a dark and depraved world is you don't grumble and you hold fast to God's word. Now, In the second half of verse 16, Paul does not want to be disappointed on the day of judgment and somehow his ministry to the Philippians was not in vain. What does he say there? So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What Paul's basically saying here is that evidence that the Philippian church is truly saved means they will persevere to the end through a lifestyle of faith. They'll continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They'll shine like lights. They'll hold fast to the Word. Now, 
Go back up and read chapter two. Let's go back up and read chapter two, verses one through four. Okay? This is last week and this week coming together, and I'm going to ask a question. Okay. Chapter two, verse one. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Go down to verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So here's my question. If Christians truly lived like Philippians 2, 1 through 14, how would our world be different? How would this affect our evangelism? What will we be known for? Those Christians are unified. Those Christians are loving. Those Christians are humble. Those Christians don't grumble and complain. Those Christians are seeking the needs of others before themselves. What's the exact opposite of what our world does? Our world's prideful. Our world's dog-eat-dog. Our world's competitive. Our world is jealous. Our world operates out of putting themselves ahead. Our world operates out of grumbling and complaining and not being joyful. And Paul's saying, listen, if you really want to shine like lights in a world that needs the gospel, it comes down to some real practical things. Your attitude, how you grumble, how you complain, how you, your humility, how you treat others. Also, how you hold fast to the word of Christ. You don't, you don't compromise on the word. So there's two things here. Your witness is affected, number one, by theology. You've got to have strong theology. You've got to hold fast to the word. You don't want to compromise the word. But it also is lifestyle. Very practical. Humility, not grumbling. Looking out for others. So our world, I think, would be much different if Christians truly lived out in the power of the Spirit. Philippians 2, 12 through, or Philippians 2, 1 through 14. Now let's look at the last part here tonight, and we may get done early, unless you guys have a lot of questions. Um, I knew we'd probably get done a little early tonight because I only had nine pages. Normally I have 12 to 13. By the way, if you want to know how many pages my sermons are, they're 10 pages. I know, I know if, my, if my sermon goes to 11 pages, I know it's going to be a long, long sermon. So I try to keep them to 10 pages. That's just all these years of doing it, that's what I know. Wednesday night's a lot different because Wednesday night I can go on tangents and stuff like that. I'm not, not quite as, as, as uh, time-bound. All right, so third here, Paul's focused on Philippians' participation in his ministry. So look at verse 17 and 18. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you all should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, again, where's Paul? Why is Paul talking like this? If I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, what, what's this imagery of being poured out like a drink offering? It's, it's metaphorical language of dying in prison. Paul knows that he could die any day. 
He would be poured out like a drink offering. He, he knows death is at his doorstep as quickly as possible. Remember he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is vain. I, I want to really die to go be with Jesus, but if he leaves me alive, I have fruitful labor. I really want to go die. But Paul doesn't necessarily know how, he, how he's going to die. The question, though, is how does Paul face this? What word is repeated? I am glad and what? Rejoice with you. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. What I say was one of the key words in Philippians? Joy. Rejoice, rejoice, joy, joy. It's repeated over and over again. Paul faces prison. Paul faces imminent death with joy and gladness. That's why I started in verse 21 of chapter 1. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And Paul says, listen, I'm going to face my death with joy and gladness. And likewise, if I'm going to die, you should be glad and rejoice also, because it's God's will. So here's the, the hard question. Where do you get that type of attitude of contentment and joy knowing that you're facing imminent death? How can Paul say this? Where does this type of joy come from? Look back at verse 13. Where did the joy come from? It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good purpose. How can Paul have joy in the midst of suffering? How can Paul have joy in the midst of knowing he's going to die? God's working in him. God's producing that joy. Is joy something we produce or is it part of the fruit of the Spirit? You and I cannot produce joy. We can feign happiness, but we can't produce joy. Only God can produce that. Yeah. The question is... Well, I, I think he came to grips with what he did. Um, as far as you're talking about being a persecutor and being a, a blasphemer. Okay, let me give you a great passage of Scripture where Paul addresses that. So I'm going to answer. So your question is... Did Paul ever forgive himself for his former life? I think that he received God's forgiveness for what happened. And let me show you where that is. Okay, so the question is, what was Paul's attitude toward his former life and what's his attitude toward his life post being a persecutor? Um, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, 1 Timothy 1, 12, this is not in your notes. This is answering a question. You guys tell me what Paul's attitude is. And again, this is, this is a great tie-in, so it's a great question because this ties into joy. Everybody there? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12? Okay. I thank Him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly... Okay, what was Paul's life formerly? I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But 
I received mercy because I had acted in ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me is the foremost. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And amen. Paul makes up a word here. The ESV translates it as foremost. Paul says, I'm the worstest of the worstest. I'm the chief. I'm the worst. If there's a bad worst sinner, I'm the worst sinner. I, I'm at the front of the line because I actually stood there and went door to door and killed Christians. How bad can you be to kill Christians? I was ignorant, I was rebellious, I was insolent, I was a blasphemer, but God showed me mercy. And notice what he says there in verse 14. That Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Aren't you thankful that God showed you perfect patience and salvation? Nobody is beyond the reach of a loving and sovereign God, no matter how far you think you've sinned. Because Paul is an example here of somebody that sinned grievously, and God saved him by grace, as an example that God can save the worst of sinners. Think of the worst sinner you could think of. That person's not beyond God's grasp of salvation. We might write them off, but they may be one of God's elect that he just hasn't regenerated yet so the only way back to philippians the only way you can have joy in the midst of extreme suffering and have this gladness is by knowing two things that we've just seen last week and this week one is you look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's go back to verse 6. We're back in Philippians now. <laughs> Sorry, back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. This was that ancient hymn that Paul used to instruct us about Christology, but also to inspire us to be humble. But this is going to, when you, when you think about this, when you think about this, this will give you joy. Philippians 2.6 Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How can you have joy in the midst of suffering? Jesus Christ is Lord. He died, he rose again, he's King of kings, he's Lord of lords. And how else can you have joy? Not only by contemplating the fact that Jesus is Lord, but Number two, he's working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He's given you that joy. 
He's given you that sustenance. He's given you that strength. So let's ask some final questions here. These, these are just questions for you to think about as we, as we wrap up tonight. Are you a light shining in a corrupt world? Are you a light? Is your light shining? Are you doing everything without grumbling? Are you facing your suffering with joy? So as we look at Philippians chapter 2, what we've looked at the past two weeks, what does it look like to work out your salvation consistently and faithfully? What does it look like? Well, let me summarize what we've looked at the past few weeks. You're striving for unity with others. You're not complaining or griping or causing dissension. You're walking in integrity. You're letting your light shine before others through your good works. You're holding fast to the Word of God without compromise. And you're suffering well with joy. So if you want to know you're working out your salvation, there's some... There's like six or seven things there based upon the scriptures that will let you know that you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if those things happen to be true of you, why are they true of you? Because God's working those in you and producing those in you. Never pat yourself on the back and say, oh, wow, man, I'm pretty humble today. I'm walking in integrity today. I'm really pleasing the Lord today. I didn't cause dissension in the church today. I didn't grumble today. Wow, I'm doing pretty good. Never, never do that because any success you have is because God worked that in you. So you turn around, you praise Him and say, Lord, I can't produce this on my own. Somehow you produced it in me. Thank you, Jesus, for producing this in me. Keep it up. Keep working in me because I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling knowing that you work in me to produce those things. All right. We do have 15 minutes left, which I can entertain questions either online, if there are some, or in the room, if there are some, or from my head, if they happen to come. No, I'm just joking. What are some questions you guys have? Clarification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was. Yeah, Jesus was full of joy. The Gospel of Luke has Je- has more expressions of Jesus expressing joy than the other Gospels. It's the it's the Gospel of joy. But in John 15, Jesus says, "My joy I give you, that your joy may be full." The joy Jesus has, he gives to us that our joy may be full. That's a pretty mind-blowing. He was the man of sorrows who went to the cross, but he was also joyful in the midst of all the things that he went through. We often think of Jesus like this dour man with a British accent and feathered hair walking around because we see these things on TV like he's this, you know, do you ever think of Jesus just cutting up with the disciples and having fun? I mean, the Bible doesn't record that at times, but I'm sure that Jesus had joyful times with his disciples that weren't recorded in the Scripture because we didn't need to know those. But, I mean, he spent three years with these men. 
I'm sure he had some times of just laughing. They probably had a lot of belly laughing at times and just enjoying life together. Um, so, yeah, Jesus had joy. It wasn't surface-level happiness, too. It was joy of the Lord. Anything else? Yes, Kevin. Okay, just say it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so what you're saying is, is that you can have biblical knowledge and not be Christ-like. Or you can have little biblical knowledge and be Christ-like. I would say that the best place that that, that answer comes from is in John chapter 4, and we looked at this a few about a month or so ago, when we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We've got to have the theology and the knowledge, but we also have to have the heart and the life change. You have to have both, and they feed off of each other. You can't be more like Christ if you don't know Christ. Remember what I said last week? You were probably, if you weren't here, I'll say it again. And this is something I say a lot, and I'll say it again. The more you look at Christ, the more you begin to look like Christ. Say that again. The more you look at Christ, the more you begin to look like Christ. Now, how do you look at Christ? Oh, he's up there somewhere. What does it mean to look at Christ? You spend time growing praying, reading, saturating yourself with the things of Christ. And the more you do that, He works in you to will and to act according to His good pleasure, and you begin progressively to look more like Christ. Now, it's not just knowledge, for knowledge's sake. Um, you can be like the Pharisees and the lawyers. Remember last Sunday, the lawyers were the most intelligent, educated people in all of Israel. They were the ones who knew the Old Testament. And Jesus says, woe to you, because you have no idea what you're talking about. So you can have biblical knowledge and, not, and have a heart far from God. Let me tell you a personal story here. When I was in seminary back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I got my master's, not my doctorate, my master's. The boys were little. Zachary was just born. Aiden was probably two. Um, in seminary, you have to read a lot of books. And I remember there came a point in seminary where I was reading so many books for class, 
And I'm a reader. It led me to read other books that you'd like read a footnote. I got to get that book. So, that, so my Amazon account started in 1999. I've been an Amazon member since 1999, getting books from Amazon back then. So I've been a you know, long time Amazon guy. Um, so there was a point for like almost six months where all I did was read books. And I remember getting so convicted one time. And I'm not saying the Lord audibly said anything to me because that, that, that's never happened to me. But basically what I, what I came to the conclusion was, and I think it was the Holy Spirit giving me this, was, Sean, you have a lot of knowledge. And you can read a lot of books. And your mind's filled. But where's your heart? You have a big head and a cold heart. And I had to stop and think, yeah, I had a lot of knowledge, but I had a cold heart. And so I have to guard myself against that because I like to read. I probably read four or five books at a time and just, just read all the time. And, and I can get so into the, the depth of reading and thinking and the theology that I forget that the purpose of that is to grow closer to Christ, not just to learn. If these things aren't leading me to grow closer to Christ, then, then, then they're really kind of not really purposeful. And so you can have biblical knowledge and a heart far from God. I've been there. Now, you want both. You want to grow in knowledge, but you also want a heart that's inflamed with love for Christ. So, anyway. All right, anything else? Ocus docus. That's Latin for okie dokie. Okay? Ocus docus. Some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about? All right, let me pray for us, and then you've got a few minutes to fellowship, and then go get your kids. So, Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture tonight. And, and Lord, we need to hear the fact that you work in us to will and to act and to work according to your good purpose. Lord, we need you to work in us. We can't do it ourselves. Lord, we can't be a, a person that, 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 that's not a grumbler or a complainer or humble or, self, or, or self-sacrificial. We can't be that type of person without you working in us. And Lord, our world is full of darkness and twisted and corrupt, and they need to see examples of someone who's living for Christ. We need to shine like lights in a dark world. And Lord, maybe we never thought about the way we shine is by our attitude and our grumbling and how we have joy in the midst of suffering. And maybe we can remember those times where somebody came to us and said, you know what, there's something different about you. I can't quite put my finger on it, but you, there's something different about you. And that opens a door for us to share the gospel. So Lord, help us to hold fast to the word. Help us to be your people. Help us to shine like lights in a dark world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.